And this all leads up to the Passover, the, the festival of unleavened bread in Jerusalem. That is where they are now in, from chapter 13 through to 17. Um, yeah, they've, they've been eating this meal. They've been talking. They've been discussing theology. They've been talking about what Jesus is doing, where he's come from, where he's going. And it's really incredible to read because this is, we, we get to have insight into a very intimate conversation. Jesus is talking directly to his, his apostles, his ones that he's going to send out to preach the gospel. And it's like we get to, to listen in. It's like when you're, you're sitting, I don't know, at a train station next to some people, and you can hear them talking, and you're listening in on their conversation. Maybe they're sharing about their life or something, and you're really intrigued by it, but they're not talking to you directly. And that's what we get in this. So there is a lot of stuff in, in this in this passage that we can apply to our lives. But some of it also is Jesus talking to his closest followers that he's going to send out to preach the gospel. It talks about being cast out of synagogues and things like that. We don't go to synagogue, so we can't, can't apply that directly to us. And so as we work through this narrative, as we work through this, this conversation, just remember that the Bible is written for us, but it's not written to us. Disciples, and we can benefit from that, but it's not always directly to us. Does that make sense? Okay, let me just pray, and then we're going to dig into verse 18. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that, that you have given it to us, that it is um, useful for teaching, for rebuking, for exhorting, for encouragement, for equipping us for every good work. Father, I pray this morning that as I bring your word, that you'd have your hand on me, that anything that I say that isn't of you, Lord, would be forgotten, that everything that is of you would be remembered, Lord. I pray that you'd help me to, to make it really clear what you're saying in this passage. Lord, I pray that we'd have soft hearts receptive to your word this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me read. I'm going to read from chapter 15, verse 18 to 16, 4, and then we'll dig into it. So John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the words that I said to you. The servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will, keep, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all of these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember 
that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. This is the word of the Lord. So you'll notice that I'm only going to go to the first half of verse 4. I'm not going to work through the whole of verse 4 because there's sort of a break, uh, um, yeah, a heading in between. That, that moves into a new section where it's talking about the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to work from 18, verse 18 to 16, 4. So the world hates you. Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So Jesus starts this, this small periscope, is the word that they like to use, this small section by going, the world's going to hate you. And this is talking, obviously, directly to his 12 apostles that he's sitting at the meal with. He's going, the world's going to hate you because they hate me. They're not going to listen to what you say because they didn't listen to me. The apostles have been walking with Jesus. They've been taught and heard the oracles of God, things that aren't written down. We don't have everything that Jesus said written in the Bible, but the disciples heard everything that he said for three years. Things that Jesus spoke. But they hadn't gone through the persecution for the most part. During these, these three years, they'd had opposition from the Pharisees. They'd had people coming and trying to entrap them, but they hadn't had all-out persecution. No one had been killed at this point for believing in Christ. There may have been plots, but no one had actually been killed at this point. And so when it comes to going, the world will hate you, the disciples maybe didn't really understand what this fully meant. What does it mean that the world will hate us? It'll be like the Pharisees, they'll come and ask us difficult questions. No. It'll be much worse than that. As we go through these first sort of four or five verses, we see that, that Jesus uses if a few times. He goes, if the world hates you, if you were of the world, if they persecuted me, if they kept my word. And so it sounds like it's almost conditional. It's like, well, they might not. But actually, this is a statement. They will persecute you. They will hate you. We know that when we are saved, we are, as Paul says in Galatians 6.14, crucified to the world, and the world has been crucified to us. Because we know that the world is evil, filled with things opposed to God. When we are in Christ, we are no longer part of that. He puts his Holy Spirit in us, regenerating us and turning us into a new creation. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And so we are no longer part of the world. We are something different. We are part of Christ's body. And so because the world hates Christ, it only follows that the world hates his body, his people. We see this if we look at church history. We see numerous persecutions, especially in the early church. People being killed for their faith. It only makes sense that the people that propagate Christ's teachings, the people who call the world to repent, to turn from their evil actions, to trust in the gracious Savior, the merciful Savior, will be killed. Because 
they hate Christ, then they hate also his people. But more than that, if we were like the world, they would accept us as their own. If we were like the world, they would accept us as our own. There is a clear contrast then between those that are in the world and those who are in Christ. We're not meant to look like the world because we're in Christ. The, the Apostle John, the same writer that wrote the Gospel, says in his first letter, um, John, 1 John 2, 15-17, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. When I read this, when I see that we are going to be hated by the world, and that we're not going to be loved because we're not meant to be like the world, and then I look at the global church, I look at, at the church in the UK and in the States, church with a big C, all denominations, there are many denominations which have decided that they need to be loved by the world, which have decided that they need to follow what the world is doing. They need to conform to the way of the world. And so they compromise, they downplay the words of Jesus, oh, he didn't mean that there, or he didn't talk about that there. They try to twist the scriptures to fit with their ideology or their agenda. They treat it maybe merely as a good book, but not as authoritative. Jesus was a nice guy, but he didn't really mean that when he said that. Or he meant something else. But this goes completely against the, the words of Christ in this passage. If you're a believer, the world will hate you. If you are in Christ, the world will hate you. You're not meant to be like the world. You're meant to be markedly different. We're not meant to bow to the God of this age or the sinful desires of man because we are in Christ. Because we are His and not our own. We are longing for a new creation to dwell with God. As I mentioned at the beginning of this um, passage at the beginning of this sermon, there are bits in this passage which don't apply to us, or which apply to us in a different way. And I think that this next verse is one of them. Or verse 19, it says, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This links back to verse 16, which I think you covered last week. Jesus has been speaking to the apostles and has said to them, I've chosen you that you should go. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. The apostles didn't choose Christ, but Christ, as he was walking, chose them. Calvin, John Calvin, the reformer, calls this that special election by which he set apart his disciples to the office of preaching the gospel. He chose them to go into the world and proclaim him, proclaim Christ. And he repeats that here. He has chosen the disciples out of the world, and because of that, they will be hated. Because they were his followers, because they are the ones who were the foundational teachers, they will be hated. 
And it goes through. He says, remember what I've already told you. The servant is not greater than his master. This is, I think, in chapter 14, he says this. Part of the same evening discussion. He goes, the servant's not greater than the master. If they hate me, they will hate you. Don't think that you're any better than me. Don't think you're any greater than me. They persecute me, they will persecute you. They come with rocks to stone me, they will come with rocks to stone you. But the inverse is also true. If they have listened to my words, then they will also listen to yours. Jesus is telling his apostles that they will be the mouthpiece for God once he has gone. That what they say will be acted upon in the same way that the words of Jesus are acted upon. If they listen to me, they will listen to you. Now, I can't look at this and honestly go, this applies to all believers everywhere. I can't say, well, if they listen to Jesus as a believer, I can't say, well, if they listen to Jesus, then they should listen to me. I don't have the authority of Jesus. I don't have the authority of the apostles. That would be absurd. What Jesus is doing is he is giving the apostles a special authority, assuring them that as apostles, they would be the sent ones of Christ who would have the authority and the teaching that belongs to Christ. They'd been with him for three years. They'd learned everything that he had told them. And now he was saying, go and teach. Go and preach. If they listen to me, they will listen to you too, because you are with me. The way this plays out and the way that this then applies to us is that the Word of God, the Bible, the writings of these apostles, the writings of these people that were with Jesus, the Twelve, should be equally important as the red letters, as the the words of Jesus that we have. We need to follow the, the teachings of John and of Peter and of Paul just as closely as we follow the words of Jesus. Because according to Jesus, they're of the same authority. We can't pick and choose. We can't go, oh, well, I like, I like, Peter's, I like Peter's letters, but I don't really like James. That's a bit hard for me. That's a bit hard to get my head around. No, it's all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is God-breathed. We cannot reject one bit and keep the other. This one sentence means that we need to take the words of the apostles of Christ seriously. If they listen to me, they will listen to you. Verse 21 then sort of sums up what he's been saying. Sums up all of this hatred and persecutions. And it's because the world hates Jesus. Not only do they hate Jesus, the Son of God, but they do not know the one who sent Jesus. That is the Father. And this is an astonishing statement when he's talking to Jews. He's talking to people that have been worshipping God, that have been following God for millennia at this point. He says they didn't know the Father. The world, which includes the Jews who reject him, do not know God. Jesus, who's saying, Jesus here is saying, They may look like they know God. They have the temple. They have their phylacteries, their long tassels on their robes. They look really pious and righteous. But they've rejected Christ. And to reject Christ is to reject the Father. They've rejected God wholesale. They cannot know God because they have not known Christ. 
they do not actually know the God who they profess to follow. And this then leads into the next section, verse 22 to 25. It's the guilt and the lack of excuse. It says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father. Hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. If Jesus hadn't come and spoken to them, then they, that is the the world, specifically the Jews, they would not have had guilt in the same way that they do now. They would not have had the guilt of rejecting him. If Jesus hadn't come, I'm not saying that they would have been perfect. Everyone sins. It's not, Jesus isn't saying, if I hadn't come, then they wouldn't have sinned. But he's saying, the sins that they've committed since I've been here wouldn't have happened. They wouldn't have been able to reject him. If Jesus hadn't come proving that he was God and that he was, um, that he was from God and that he was God, then the people wouldn't have been guilty for rejecting him. They wouldn't have been able to reject him. But now that he has come, he has spoken to them, he has taught them, they're guilty and without excuse. They have no excuse. And as we've already seen, they hate Jesus. That is their guilt. And because they hate Jesus, they also hate the Father. This helps us to understand the nature of God. We believe in a trinity. God is, is unlike anything that we can really imagine. It's really hard to sort of wrap our heads around some of the, the things about God. And one of them is his Trinitarian nature. He is three persons and yet one being. We usually think of people as beings. You have, as humans, we are, I am a being, a human being and I am one person. God is, is three, be, three persons, but one being. It's really, yeah. The Trinity is something that I'm sure we will wrestle with until we reach eternity. And I am looking forward to just seeing God and understanding it. It's something that I look forward to. But the thing is, is that Jesus here is saying that to hate one person of the Trinity is to hate God. You can't separate it out. And this is where many of the sort of cultic groups go wrong. The JWs, the Mormons, they try to take Christ and say he's not God. But by doing so, they hate God. They say that Jesus was a prophet or a good teacher, but not God. And in doing so, they deny the Father. They deny God. So if Jesus is not accepted, then he is rejected. And if Jesus is rejected, then God is rejected. And friend, if you don't know God this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ who came to live the only perfect life, to die the perfect sacrificial death, the one who was gentle and lowly, who died on the cross for you, who took all sin into himself, for you, so that you can come to him in humility and repentance and be saved, then I pray that you would come to him. Come to him this morning. But Jesus goes on. He says that he has done works among them that no one else did. 
through his miracles, his works, he, prov- he proved that he was the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 35, at the beginning of verse 6, it lists some of the works that the Messiah will do. So Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5, and the beginning of 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of, a mute, of the mute sing for joy. That might sound a bit familiar, if you've been reading Luke recently, especially. Because in Luke chapter 7, verse 22, John the Baptist is wondering if Jesus is really the Messiah. He's been locked up, and he sends some of his, his disciples, some of his followers, John the Baptist, sends them to Jesus and says, are you, really, are you really the Messiah, or should we look for another one? Luke 7, 22 says, and he answered them. So this is Jesus speaking to John's disciples. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers cleanse, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus, throughout his ministry, through the miracles that he worked, proved without a shadow of a doubt that not only was he a prophet, but he was God, incarnate, in flesh. He was the Messiah, the one that they should have exalted and worshipped. And even though he proved his Messiahship, the Jews rejected him. Even though he worked miracles greater than anyone had ever seen, both before him and after him, he was rejected. He was rejected. And Jesus points to this rejection and says, this is also a fulfillment of scriptures. This was also told about hundreds or thousands of years ago. This scripture is either Psalm 69 verse 4 or Psalm 35 verse 19. But both of these Psalms talk about a writer who is under great oppression, essentially, who's got multitudes of enemies coming around them. They hate the speaker for no reason. They hate me without reason, without a cause. And we'll actually see this even more when we come to Jesus' trial. When Jesus was on trial, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders had to bring up false witnesses because they didn't have any witnesses against Christ, because he was perfect. In Mark chapter 14, verses 55 to 59, it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say he will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another one not made with hands. But even about this, their testimony didn't agree. Jesus was hated without cause, without reason. It says that it is a fulfillment of their law. This highlights that he's talking about the Jews, the people of Israel, whose legalism had led them away from God, had led them to pursue their own righteousness, which they thought they could get through the law, a righteousness of works. Romans 9 talks about this. Um, Romans 9, 30 and 32 says, what, then, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it in faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. They have stumbled on Christ. The Jews rejected Christ without cause, stumbling over the stone. 
There is no reason for Jesus to be hated. And if we look at the things he says, yes, it's difficult. Yes, it challenges our inward understanding of ourselves. Yes, it it shows us our sin and our corruption. It forces all of that to be confronted. And he forces the world to actually see its inadequacy, its need for a savior. Forces us to see our need for a savior. But certainly nothing that would cause hatred toward him. If we look at his works, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he brought freedom to those in bondage. He fed over 9,000 people in two sittings. I think even Grace would struggle with that. (laughs) These are all things that should have commended Jesus, but instead he was hated. And I think we can all say quite safely, still is hated. You can very quickly find people that rail against God. Verse 26 and 27 then sort of shifts our view. This is now talking about the helper. Verse 26 and 27. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. But when the helper comes, this phrase sort of marks a whole new thought a new paragraph, some people even, some, some Bible translations will even put a heading there, put a break in there. But this, this changes the thought from talking about the persecutions directly, the world that hates Jesus, to talking about the Holy Spirit. He calls the Holy Spirit the helper. This word is paraclete. It is translated in other translations as advocate or counselor, comforter, encourager. That's all sort of packed into this idea. It's the other one that will come and help you in all these ways. But if you picture yourself in, um, in, in the disciples' shoes, they'd been following Jesus for three years and learning from him. They'd come to understand that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, um, and they thought that he was going to bring the kingdom in. Thought that he was going to start an earthly kingdom. And now he starts talking about leaving, starts talking about dying, starts talking about ascending to the Father. This to the disciples would have been earth-shattering. What? You're, you're going to leave, Jesus? What on earth are we going to do? We, we need you. We, you're, we follow you. That's, what do we do? But Jesus knows that it is better for them to have the Holy Spirit. And so he says, I'm going to send another one. I'm going to send a guy, uh, another one who is God, to come and help you. To come and be your counselor, your advocate, your comforter, your encourager. The rest of the Holy Spirit's works we're actually going to look at next week. That's from verse 5 onwards. So I'm not not going to look into that so much more. But he does talk about the Holy Spirit. He talks about what he's going to do. He also talks about where the, who the Holy Spirit is. Where does he come from? The Holy Spirit comes from heaven and is sent by the Son when he returned to heaven. The Holy Spirit is from the Father, but not created by the Father, proceeding from him. There's a whole theological debate in church history about what that means, proceeding from the Father. 
coming from the Father, not created. This again is, is a clear example of the Trinity that we just looked at. It's the Holy Spirit. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all in two verses. But because we have the Son leaving the earth to be with the Father, we then have the Son sending the Holy Spirit from the Father to come and help His followers. This is not three gods, but one God in three persons, all acting in different ways. All acting to bring people out of the world and into Christ, into the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. In Him there is nothing false. He cannot lie. He cannot trick. He cannot act in a deceitful manner. When the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of unrighteousness and sin, He does not bring false charges, but hits right to the core of our issues, showing where there needs to be resolution, showing that we need a Savior. He never speaks falsely. We will see next week that he also guides the apostles in all truth. What they say comes from God. The reason then that the Holy Spirit is along with being our helper is that along with being our helper, he is a witness to Christ. It says, he will be a witness to me. He will bear witness about me. He is a witness of the death and resurrection, his life and miracles, His witness is matched then and goes along with the witness of the apostles. They are also witnesses. We know that the apostles, um, that this is the apostles because they were there from the beginning, for the entirety of his ministry, for the three-year period, from the baptism to this point in the story, which is the Last Supper, but they will also witness the resurrection, which we will see in a few weeks' time or a few months' time. We see that they were the authoritative teachers of Christianity because they had learned from Jesus. They had sat with him for three years. That's why I've already said we need to submit to the authority of the writings because they come from Jesus. They come from his apostles that he had taught, that had learned from him. The fact that they were with Jesus for three years, the fact that they were with Jesus for three years from the beginning of his ministry, his baptism, through to the resurrection, actually is really important. It comes up again in in Acts chapter 1. As the apostles are discussing um, who will replace Judas Iscariot as the 12th apostle, Judas had betrayed Jesus, had forfeited his apostleship, and had killed himself. They're saying, we need someone to fill that spot. Jesus sent out 12 of us, there needs to be 12 of us. And so in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, Peter speaking, and he says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, from the beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, all these men must, all of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Here's one of the criteria. The apostles not only walked with Jesus for, for three years, 36 months, but they also witnessed his resurrection. And then they witnessed his ascension. They watched him go up into heaven and then were sent out. And then Jesus, after speaking about all these things, speaking about the Holy Spirit, speaking about the persecution, the hatred, he sort of sums it all up in chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. They say, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the arrow is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. 
And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. So I'm just going to talk up to, I told you. I told them to you. So the reason that that, um, he, Jesus, has spoken about all these things, the reason that the Holy Spirit will come and indwell them is to stop them from falling away. Jesus is making sure through this whole conversation at the Last Supper that the apostles are not caught out unawares when persecution comes, when difficulty comes, when they will be killed. So that when all of that comes, they do not forsake what they have all learnt. The point is that Jesus is stopping them from stumbling. They won't fall away because Jesus won't let them. He wants to make sure that they are properly prepared for what there is to come, because it is not going to be fun, to say the least. We see that the followers of Jesus up to this point were almost exclusively Jewish. In fact, it's not until Acts chapter 10 that we have Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God, coming into Christ, being saved. And so for Jesus to tell them, hey, you're going to be excommunicated, you're going to be put out of the synagogues, that's to tell them, you're going to lose the only religious community that you have ever known. You're going to get kicked out of all of that stuff that you've been doing since you were a baby, since you were eight days old. That's going to happen. That's just the way it is. They're going to hate you because they've hated me. And beyond that excommunication, the Jews who killed Christians actually think that they're doing a service for God. They think that by killing these heretics in their eyes, it was serving God in some way. Does this remind you of anyone? It reminds me of the Apostle Paul before he was saved. The testimony of the Apostle Paul, he was the only apostle that wasn't at the Last Supper, but was still chosen by God in spectacular fashion. Before he was saved, when he was still a Pharisee, he did terrible things. In Acts chapter 26, verses 9 to 11, Paul is on trial. He's in front of King Agrippa. And he speaks, he says this, Acts chapter 26, verses 9 to 11. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul, as a Pharisee, had, I think it's safe to say, a raging hatred of Christians. He persecuted anyone who professed to follow in Christ. He tried to make them blaspheme because the penalty for blasphemy was death. He wanted to kill them as quickly as he could see them, to arrest them, and put them in prison. He stood by and watched, approving, while Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter 7. He was blind and hardened against God. If you want to read about how the Pharisees and the religious leaders felt, of the Jews felt about Christians, just read some of the things from Paul's trials in Acts chapters 22 to 26. He goes in depth into what it was like as a Pharisee, and then how he changed when he became a Christian. But it is brutal 
is brutal. But these things were done because the Jews don't actually know God. They don't know the God that they say they do. As we've already seen this morning, you cannot know the Father and reject the Son. As the Jewish leaders persecute the believers, it is a clear demonstration they have not only rejected Christ, but also the Father. They don't know the Father. They have remained hardened and still don't understand the work of God. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we saw that actually the Jews are hardened to the gospel. They don't understand the glory of God as revealed through the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all of this has been said, all of this has been said so that the apostles will remember it. Throughout this whole passage, Jesus' desire is that the apostles are prepared for what to come. And we know that the apostles, for the apostles, it was only a couple of hours later that Jesus was betrayed. That Jesus was taken as a an insurrectionist is the word that they use. They come with clubs and try to arre- or arrest him and take him to the cross. Only a couple of hours after Jesus has said all these things, the cause seems like it's lost. Jesus is dead. They don't know what to do. They're scattered as sheep. But we know what happens. As I come to the end, I just want to give a couple of points of application from this passage. The first is that we are not meant to look like the world. That is the main, main thing that I want you to remember. The world hates Christ, and by extension, it hates those who are in Christ, those who follow Christ. Here's what Jesus says in this passage. And we see it still in the world today. Christians are actually the, the most persecuted religion in the world, the most persecuted group of people. In 2023, there were 4,998 Christians killed for their faith, for following Christ. That was according to Open Doors. And this isn't, this isn't to give us a persecution complex. This isn't to go, oh, well, if anyone does something that I don't like, I'm being persecuted. That's not what I'm saying. In the UK, we have great freedom. We can meet, we can gather, we can preach the gospel basically freely. We won't get much problem for it. But we need to remember that the world is opposed to Christ. It is only through the power of God that we are saved out of the world and that that offer is there for anyone. However, in the meantime, let's not waste our time by trying to make the world think that we're great. Let's not waste our time trying to, to get the world to like us because that will never happen not until Christ returns. Instead, let's preach Christ so that the world might come to know and love him and become part of his body. Become part of the kingdom. Don't be like the world. Preach Christ. The second point that I want to point out from this passage is that we can trust the Bible because it is the commandments of Christ and his apostles is the writings of him and his apostles. And if we believe in Christ, if we claim to be Christians, then we should follow his commandments. If he says that we are to listen to him, but he also says that we are to listen to his apostles. That includes the entirety of the New Testament. And to listen to him is to listen to the old as well. Those are the ones that he chose and sent into the world to make him known. The apostles were worked through, God worked through them to establish the church. We read in the Bible 
you know, full understanding of who God is because he guided the apostles to write these things. Have, have trust in your Bible because it is from God. The third and final application is more of an exhortation. We live on the other side of all these statements. We live on the other side of the resurrection of the church. And so for the Holy Spirit, for the apostles, the Holy Spirit hadn't come to indwell them yet. This is all before any of that happens. This is before Pentecost. However, we are now in a time where everyone who truly believes is given the Holy Spirit to live in them. First uh, Corinthians talks about being a temple to the Holy Spirit. You are not your own, but a temple to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to us and ministers to us. So this week, if you feel like you're struggling, if you're going through a tough time, if you've just had enough, remember that the Holy Spirit is living in you, strengthening you, helping you. And he will always be there. He set as a seal on you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you work wonderfully in ways that we don't fully understand. Father, I pray that whatever I've said that isn't from you would be forgotten, would be left behind, Lord, but that whatever is from you would remain. I pray that you would work in us as a church to be more like you, that we would mature in our faith, that we grow up. And Lord, we, we look forward to the day that we see Christ return. Father, I pray that you'd help us to preach Christ, to not conform to the world, but be conformed to the image of the Son. That as we seek to follow you, you would help us in that. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to welcome the worship team to come back up, and we're going to sing a song.